2,000 years ago, the world was so different. Uh, maybe not as different, different the way that you would expect me to describe it, but it was such a worse place than the world we live in today. 2,000 years ago, the world was so much worse. And, and I know that that may sound like a statement contrary to what you may hear, maybe what you believe. Uh, if you stick around me, it's a statement that you'll hear me repeat often, not simply to be contrary um, or, or to put myself at odds against what's popularly purported in church or religion. But I, I say this because it's undeniably true. 2,000 years ago, even 3,000, 4,000 years ago, the world was a far different place and a much worse place. The whole idea that the world today is the worst version that it's ever been suggests that we take for granted and that we're so very numb to the very reason it maybe is the best possible version that could exist. Now, there are a lot of things that are wrong and, and the world is far from perfect, but the myth or the delusion that this world has ever been anything close to perfect is laughable. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, what does the world today have that it did not have 2,000, 3,000, et cetera, years ago? What makes the world today demonstrably better or improved than the world 2,000 years ago? And the answer I give you is that our world today has spiritual refuge, spiritual refuge. Now, probably the most overlooked truth about humanity is that there is more to us than meets the eye. We are more than our bodies. We are more than flesh and blood. We are more than bone and muscle. We are more than the work and the leisure of our lives and what we spend them on. We are spiritual creatures. Now, in a scientific world, this gets undervalued, it gets overlooked, it gets, feel, it gets filed away under other categories. But the story of humanity, the experiences from every corner of the world, from as far back to as current as you look, humans have all expressed an awareness and a sensitivity to something more than can be explained away by vital signs, bank accounts, and our resumes. And that's because human beings at their core are spiritual creatures. We are spiritual creatures. Every one of us has a soul. Now, the human soul is really easy to um, reference, but hard to describe and hard to define. Uh, the human soul is intangible, as in it, it, there's no way to measure it. There's no way to put our arms around it. There's no way to kind of say this is what it looks like. The, the human soul is intangible, yet it is the source of most of our expressions. The joy that you feel, the devastation that you feel, the greatness and the sorrow that you feel, all those things, they are origin, their origin, their source is your soul. That without a soul, our bodies are just husk. Our bodies are without a personality. Our bodies are without expression. The human soul is also invisible yet it's the source of our heaviest burdens. That you can't weigh the human soul in some quantifiable measure, but isn't it true that our souls are what brings the heaviest burdens on our hearts? We often refer to our soul as what is deep down within us, but truth be told, our souls are front and center in everything we say and everything that we do and who we are. Again, our soul is where our capacity for joy comes from. Our soul is where our propensity for devastation stems from. That it's the soul that gives us the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. It's what makes us distinct from every other living being, every other living creature in the universe because God shared something with us that he did not give anyone else. 
You see, our soul, while in step with our bodies, impacted by and refreshed by the things this world supplies, material things, they ultimately run on and are fueled by something more, something greater. Our souls need more than what appears to be enough for our bodies. And, and I would argue this is the source of the most, of all the frustration and all the, all the burdens on humanity is this reality. Would you say those four words, those first four words with me? Our souls need more, more than what this world can provide. What checks out with metrics and plays well on paper, our souls require something more. Often we don't realize this. We try to fill our bodies with things and put our bodies in things and around things that hopefully will scratch that deeper itch, will hopefully will quench that deeper thirst, but none of that works. Often we don't realize this or feel this until we don't have this or until we find ourselves where our souls are most compromised and most vulnerable. We can have perfect health. We can have perfect success. We can have perfect homes. We can have all the resources and opportunities you could ever ask for or dream of. But if something is not right with our soul, nothing is or ever will feel right or be right. Here's something about our souls that may make you feel overwhelmed at first, but I think it actually helps explain the feelings and realities that you experience so often. The difference between your body and your soul is that your body thinks and is easily convinced that nobody matters more than you. Your body is easily convinced that it operates on the basis of survival instincts and uh, from the vantage point that our appetites are all that matters and our bodies are wired to just consume everything and anything and use to take advantage of and hopefully one day they will be full and happy and healthy and everything will be well. Our body is most in tune with and really only concerned with our body. But our soul is different. Our soul is well aware that we are just a drop in the bucket in the vastness of this universe. It wasn't meant to be that way, but our souls know that it is that way. Our soul knows and sees the bigger picture, and it often feels so detached from it and so small compared to it. And this is why we are so bad at helping ourselves out of the actual struggles that we face. Our bodies, our flesh says this will fix it, but no matter how much, no matter how good, no matter how often our bodies are treated with this world, our souls need more When we're at our weakest, when we're at our worst, and at our most wounded, our souls look for refuge that this world cannot provide. And its counterfeit measures only enslave us more and damage us more. But here's the thing, and I think this is the most misunderstood part or misunderstood element when it comes to our souls. Our souls are not looking for an explanation. Our souls need advocation. Our souls need an advocate. Our souls do not need a lecture on how to do better and what to do better and what will make things better. Our souls do not need an explanation. Our souls need an advocate. Our souls need a savior. Whether you believe that or not, this universe, whether you believe it is or isn't as it should be, our souls know the condition of this universe and it knows there is no source of help in the here and now. 
or in the flesh and blood. Now, the reason why your soul gets so heavy when everything uh, should be delightful for you, have you ever been there? You have the perfect family, you have the perfect job, the perfect house, ideal everything, but something is not right. It's because your soul knows those things won't make it right. And while our souls can be suppressed when things are going relatively good for us, when all of the sudden we find ourselves wearied by this life, when one bump in the road turns into a burden that we bear for an extended season, when we find ourselves at our weakest, our worst, and most wounded, our soul's pain and frustration becomes impossible to ignore. And they want what they need the most, what they want the most is advocation, it's advocacy. When our souls feel their invisible backs against the wall of this universe, they long to know that they are not alone, that someone's at their defense, and that someone can intervene and help them. That's what advocacy is all about, that there is someone present in your lives, someone defending your life, and someone willing to intervene in your life for the better, for the good. That's what your soul needs more than anything. You can have all of the treasures and all of the treats of this world, but if you do not have this, your soul will still be longing for something greater. Not to make everything better, but to give them confidence that there's hope, that there's purpose, that there's reason. We often think explanations will make us feel better, but what we really want, what we really need is someone to advocate for us. Whether or not things make sense, what we really need is someone to give us a sense of direction, a reason, a purpose for what things are, how things are. See, while it's easy to say this world, that this world is this or that compared to a former version, for as long as there have been humans, there have been souls looking for refuge. For the longest time, there was no spiritual refuge in this world. But thankfully, all of that changed a little less than 2,000 years ago. See, I don't know what social class or what part of the world we'd be in if we all of a sudden traverse back 2,000 years across time and culture and all the barriers. But if we did, imagine if we did. If we could step into a portal and walk out into, you know, two, uh, one, you know five, BC, 5 AD or 100 BC, if we were to do that, I think the greatest contrast can be drawn between today and then is that there would be no refuge for our souls. There was no refuge for our souls. When you found yourself in the three categories that we've discussed, in the situation at our weakest, at our worst, at our most wounded, when we find ourselves in these situations, in the ancient world, there was no refuge, there was no hope, there was no advocacy. Now, I know what you're thinking. Plenty find themselves despondent today and cannot find this peace, but that doesn't mean it's not obtainable or it's not possible. However, 2,000 years ago, there was no available refuge. There was no category for those at their weakest, at their worst, and at their most wounded. 2,000 years ago, if you found yourself in these wearisome conditions, there was no safe place to land. Worse than that, there was no safe place to fall. Because while, we're, while some are good at masking it, some live in denial of it, Everybody was and everybody is and everybody will always be bound to fall and stumble more often than not. And while the things of this world can do a good job at band-aiding our weaknesses and wounds and even our worst moments, they cannot offer true refuge for our souls. They just can't. 2,000 years ago, while there were some things, some that were convinced they were doing just fine, most people were well aware of their falling condition. Most people were all too burdened by their wearied souls. And it was into that world. It was into that world that God entered into. 
Jesus stepped into a world, a wearied world, to bring refuge, to bring advocacy and hope. His ministry is filled with and really defined by his encounters and interactions with people who were at their weakest, who were at their worst, who were at their most wounded. A really awesome catch-all verse that summarizes his ministry, found in Matthew 9. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. For them, all of them. Now, I can imagine if we were there, we would say, well, you know, there's bound to be some people in this crowd that are, you know, they're really sincere. Some of them are just tagging along. Some of them are, you know, here for the show. Some of them are here to take advantage of the system. I mean, he, you could splice them up and you could really categorize them in all different ways. But when Jesus saw everybody, he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. People who were in their greatest messes, had made their greatest mistakes, Jesus sought out and spent his most time with them. People couldn't figure Jesus out. Why don't you want to spend time with us, Jesus? We're good people. We're righteous people. We're clean people. We do the right things and we go the right places and we obey the right commandments. Why are you spending time with tax collectors and sinners? People started rumors about Jesus. He's nothing but a wine drinker. He's nothing but a bum. He spends all his time with those people. Jesus spent his time with those who wore their needs on their sleeve in a lot of ways. Those that their souls were close to the surface that had not been covered up by this world. He was incredibly vilified and ridiculed for doing this by the very establishment that should have been doing this all along, but they were really unable to. In fact, Jesus came to expose that reality that the religious system wasn't able to do the job they claimed they were sent to do. And he actually came to put something better in its place. Perhaps the episode of Jesus' ministry that best captures his intention for coming to us and best portrays the refuge he brings to us is found in John 9. Now, we're not going to look at this whole story, actually just a few introduction verses in this chapter Jesus encounters a man who had been born blind and he finds himself in a conversation with his followers about the reason for this man's blindness because back in these days if you saw someone who was weak or wounded or in a worst case scenario you assumed that somebody was paying for something or they were about to you assumed that Someone was being judged by God. Someone was being, you know, taken, something was being put on, us, uh, on them a, a, as some sort of curse or some sort of affliction that they might pay for their sins or see how awful they've been and, and, and live in light of that. So they asked Jesus, you know, hey, what is the deal with this blind man? And this is really a question not about just this blind man, but all the people that were weak and wounded and in a worst case scenario. And in that moment, Jesus does something beautiful and brilliant. Rather than engaging in the debate about why this man was born blind, he provides something better. He provides advocacy for this man that he had never received from anybody. Something that nobody knew they needed, something that this blind man definitely didn't know that he needed, but it was the only thing that was gonna actually help him. This move by Jesus naturally lights a fire with his opponents, which only further will serve to highlight their inability to help people. In John 9, if you look at your Bibles, it says that Jesus passed by. They saw a blind man. He saw a man who was born 
blind from birth. And his disciples ask him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? So they don't even ask, hey, is this the result of sin? Is this the result of judgment? You know, are we, is this possibly the situation? They already assumed it was. They were just trying to figure out who made the mistake, his parents or him? I mean, how would he be responsible? He was born that way, but they were dead set on this being a result of sin, a result of judgment. And Jesus says, neither, neither. And this is my stock answer. When somebody comes to me and says, you know, is this, the repercussion of, is this judgment? Or is this, you know, am I paying for something? Is this God, are they paying for something? Or did God send that on them because of some sort of sin they committed? Did God send that storm or that event or that crisis or this national suffering? My stock answer every time somebody asks me that, is this because of judgment? Is exactly what Jesus says in verse three. Now you may not like this answer because religion does not like this answer, but if you're somebody that's at your weakest and your worst and your most wounded, this answer is healing for you. This answer I hope can liberate you from some of the bad theology in this world that basically ignores what Jesus says and propagates old lies that do nothing but hurt people and keep people away from God. So they asked Jesus, what, who sinned that this man was cursed? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, Jesus is being hyperbolic. He's saying, in fact, these people haven't sinned at all. Now, of course, they were sinners, but he's trying to make a point here. This is not the result of sin, but that the works of God should be made manifest or should be revealed in him. Or better translation, that the glory of God might be on display in his life. A few things here. The world that Jesus stepped into was a world obsessed with trying to find God and be known by him. So the reason why they ask questions like verse two all the time is because they were paranoid that they might cross a line and get away from God or they might miss God. And they were always asking, hey, what do we got to do to be right with God? Remember Nicodemus, you know, what must we do to enter the kingdom of God? They were always asking that question. They rightly felt the need, but they always went about it in a wrong way. This is how the ancient religions all came into existence, every one of them. This need to know God, but this failure to know how to find him. Religion made the mistake that we all make. Religion decided that our circumstances and success must reflect our connection to God. This is where religion went wrong in every culture as it tried to find God. They all made a hard decision, a definite decision around this idea that our circumstances and our success must reflect our connection to God. And while everybody involved knew this didn't provide their soul with what it actually needed, it, they were actually afraid of admitting they were wrong and being confronted by the truth, they always doubled down on the lie. And thus, this explains why religion was always very concerned with personal prosperity, because if you're prosperous, you must be good with God. They were very concerned with national prominence, because if your nation's successful, it must be good with God. If success and circumstances are good, then you must be good with God. They were so obsessed with trying to connect the dots, they were convinced that was their only chance. They never actually brought anyone closer to God. Religion soon discovered a possible reason. So here's what happened in the process of trying to do this. Religion decided 
we understand what's going on, that a lot of us are doing so good and being so good and we're so favored, but there's a lot of people in our world that are weighing us down. There's some folks that aren't measuring up. And religion pivoted almost as soon as it began. Religion decided that those at their weakest and worst and most wounded were scapegoats. Religion became more interested and most interested and most invested in finding reasons to remove and reject people because they might be what's holding us back. We're good. We're doing well. We're successful. We're having a good circumstances, but all these people out in the world that are holding us down, holding us back, that's why God isn't blessing us more. So there was this divide that was created. Now, to be clear, the religious system of Israel, it had the best intentions at the beginning, as best as intentions could be when it comes to human nature and its fear of falling short and doubt of ever measuring up and tendency to scapegoat the gaps onto whatever or whoever it felt necessary to. Religion developed this approach because it was well aware that it was not working and it convinced that it had to do more to please God. Part of doing more was performing, but also part of doing more was protecting. Protecting God from having to put up with those who didn't measure up, who didn't have their same conditions, intentions, performances, or potential, or ambition. So religion became like a police system, building walls, burning bridges to any people that were seeking to get in that didn't look like they could fit in. Even if they had very much humble intentions and actually were desperate to encounter God, those inside of Judaism were quick to turn them away if they seemed to be at their weakest, at their worst, or at their most wounded. Because those were obviously not good with God. Because surely that was proof that they weren't worthy of God and God would have no patience or place for them. And this is exactly the opposite of the ministry of Jesus, isn't it? At the heart of Jesus' ministry, he came to build a movement around advocacy for the very people that religion had said, there's no room for you. A movement that wasn't about performing to please God, protecting God from those that weren't measuring up, but a movement to provide refuge for every, 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 underline it, italicize it, highlight it, bold it, every soul. He came to build a movement, to build a gathering, a community that interacted with people, received people, saw people the way he saw people. And I got to say, I think one of the most underrated divine qualities of Jesus was on display in the way he engaged with people, the way he loved people, the way he welcomed people, the way he advocated for people. People who were nothing like him. People that the Old Testament theology and convictions would have said they were not good with God. They weren't favored by God. They weren't in good standing with God. They had no place with God. But Jesus said things are different now that I'm here. What is the message to this man who had been born blind? Jesus says, this is not because of judgment. I know that's what religion has taught you. Religion has made you slice and dice your society up and you, you over here because things look good and things sound good and things appear to be good and feel good. Y'all are good, but all those people out there, well, they must be wrong. Jesus says, do you really think that's how it works? 
Are y'all really getting any help inside those stone walls where nothing is actually being heard from God? And you definitely don't feel as if you're good with God, but you're worried about policing the rest of the world because you think that might help you out. And all that does is numb and deaden your soul more. Of course, they were blind by it. Jesus teaches us something here, and I hope you get this today, and I pray that God can break through somebody's barrier, whether it's because of religion put it up or maybe because the devil has tried to put it up. I don't know where you're at. But Jesus says this guy's weakness was not a sentence of God's judgment, but a starting point for God's glory. This weakness was not the end of this man. It was the beginning of God's purpose for this man. This weakness was not God's judgment. This weakness was God's glory. This is his message to all of us today. That our weaknesses are not the end of us, but they are the point in place where God wants to do the most with, for, and through us if we will just trust him. If you will listen to your soul's cry, and allow Jesus to be the refuge that only he can be. In verses four and five, Jesus says, I have to work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he's not referring to literal darkness that's coming on that day. I think he's referring to the opposition they're gonna face from this world as they seek to spread this message. And let me be very clear. Every institution of this world works against you to keep your soul from finding the rest and refuge that's only in Jesus. Every institution, when you're weak, they will leave you behind. There's no refuge in this world. Our wearied, our weakened souls find no rest in this world. And if things are going good for you, you may feel like there's some refuge in this world, but take those things away and we are exposed, aren't we? What happened the last year of our lives when everybody suddenly was on an equal playing field in certain categories? We immediately started pointing the finger at everybody and anybody that seemed to be holding us back because all of a sudden, the things that we relied on to make us happy and joyful, they were gone. And we were exposed as weak, needy creatures who did not have refuge because this world was shut down. And perhaps that is an opening eye experience for all of us to ask ourselves, where do we find refuge? When we're weary now, and for all of us, for those of you who have been in seasons of real struggles, where you feel wearied and you feel weak and you feel wounded and you're at the worst place you could be right now, this is good news. This is salvation for us. There is no refuge for our wearied souls in this world, but Jesus is our refuge. He is our advocate. He is our salvation. That does not mean our weaknesses are always gonna go away when you come to Jesus. But here's the good news. That means that Jesus is never gonna go away when you come to him in weakness. He stays with you. He embraces you. Jesus intends on leveraging our weaknesses to do his most glorious work. When you're weak, you're not forsaken, you're not forgotten, you are chosen, you are selected for something greater than you could ever imagine at its heart. This is where Christian salvation is its most beautiful. 
God comes to us in our weaknesses, whether they're physical, emotional, or mental. Because I think all of us are in one of those categories, maybe all three if you're with me. God comes to us in our weaknesses and he promises that Christ will always be our advocate. When the world points fingers, when the world shuts its doors, when people that we love shut their doors and close their hearts, Jesus says, I will always, I exist, I stand before God to be your advocate. There is an empty tomb and a nail a blood-stained cross that proves this for you. There's a Holy Spirit that moves from heaven to earth that proves this for you. There's a Bible that proves this for you. Over in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about how God actually made him weak just to prove this point. You hear that? Paul was given a weakness by God to prove that we have a greater refuge in Christ than anywhere else. Paul was a special guy, of course. God gave him a vision of heaven. He saw things that nobody ever, you know, no other human has ever saw or will ever see until we get there. God gave Paul a vision because Paul was so aware and in tune with his advocate in Christ and salvation. God took some of his luxuries away just to prove to Paul that there's nothing greater than Jesus. Now, I don't, I'm not asking anybody to pray for that to happen to you. I'm just saying exhibit A, it happened to somebody and he was happy about it. You don't believe me? Let me read to you before we get out of here from 2 Corinthians. You can look over there with me if you'd like to, but listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool for I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone think of me above what he sees or hears from me. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted or lest I get conceited. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. This is the guy that had the apostolic power of God to raise the dead. He laid his hands on a blanket and they sent it around the Roman Empire and it healed people. This is that guy. And he asked God to heal him three different times and God said no, no, and no. That make us feel so bad, right? When we go through these things. But here's the good news. Here's the point. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. I want you to learn that. And when you do, Paul, you will say, thank you. Give me as many thorns as it takes so I never forget this. You know what Paul says after that? I gladly will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities and in reproach and needs and persecutions for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I, will, I understand that I will not experience the power of Christ unless I am in this weakness. You know why God allowed Paul to go through that? Because every single one of us has a weakness that we were born with, developed along the way. Maybe you have it as a result of a broken marriage, a broken relationship, a broken dream. 
Every single one of you has a weakness. Born with it, picked it up along the way. Somebody else's fault. Every single one of us, we've prayed for God to remove it. We've asked God to take it. Maybe he has, but for a lot of us, he has it and he won't. You know why? Because there's something better for us in Jesus. That the weakness is necessary in order for us to get it. of us, this is a matter of not hiding our weaknesses, not feeling ashamed over or condemned by our weaknesses, but bringing them to God. We often feel defined by our weaknesses, but God wants to redefine them with his glory. Our most defining moments can come from our most difficult and debilitating or even disqualifying seasons where we begin to trust that God did not forsake us in our weaknesses, but rather receives us and runs towards us and reminds us of his glory. Church, at the heart of who we are and should are called to be, this should be our practice. This should be our message. Now, we never become like our religious counterparts or predecessors that forget the words and work of Jesus, forget the movement he came to start. Of course, the church doesn't always get this right. And we'll Never be perfect, but at its best, we can bottle this up and embody this and make sure that nothing gets in the way of this. Church should be and must be a collective reflection of this. But, the, but in the instant that the church isn't, because there will be plenty, whether here locally or largely universally, the good news is that what I hope is always clear to you, Jesus is always a place of refuge. He's always a safe place to fall. He's always an advocate for you. In any event, the church doesn't always measure up. Jesus' standard would condemn us and bring shame on us. But what's important for you is that when you're at your weakest and when you're at your worst and when you're your most wounded, Jesus does not condemn you. He never brings shame on you. He will always be your advocate. No matter what, he will advocate for your weary soul. Back in John 9, most of you know the story but Jesus takes this blind man, actually heals him, opens his eyes. Before the blind man can see him, he disappears in the crowd. Before long, there's this commotion of this blind guy who suddenly can see the religious leaders are summoned and they're incredulous because they knew Jesus had something to do with this and that made him mad. But part of the, the amazing part of the story is the blind guy couldn't tell anything about Jesus. He didn't see him, right? He kept saying, all I know is this man put mud on my face. He put my head in the pool and he walked away and I came out of the water and I could see. The Pharisees tried to discredit him in every way from the way it was done, the day it was done on. They call his parents to verify his medical history, but his parents are so afraid of being cast out of the temple. They lie and say, well, we don't even know who he is. He's of age, ask him. His parents abandon him because they're afraid of religion. So they literally won't advocate for their own son. But at some point, this poor blind guy doesn't care. You know why? Because more important than his eyes being opened, his soul had found refuge. It didn't matter that he hadn't saw Jesus. He witnessed the glory of God revealed through his weakness. And he would never doubt his value or purpose again. He would never doubt his connection to God again. 
The Pharisees are relentless. They come at him again and again and again. And finally, the young man says down in verse 25, whether or not the man that healed me is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind and now I can see. Church, if your soul needs rest today, if your soul needs refuge today, if your weakness needs grace today, you can find it in Jesus. Jesus comes to the man at the end of the story and says, hey, I'm the guy that healed you. It's important that you always trust in me and follow me and walk with me because what you received in your healing is what you need every day in your heart. Church, that's the message for us today. That our souls are longing for things this world cannot give. Jesus said, I promise you this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. But the peace is only found in a relationship with Jesus. As in there's nothing else that can give you peace but Jesus. I know a lot of things give people peace. People take them, they drink it, they try to save it up. A lot of things people look for for peace. But Jesus is the only one that can give you peace in your soul. There's a lot of things in this world we look at for joy, but what did Jesus say? These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy, my joy would be your joy and that it would be full. I love a lot of cool things. I had a great time a couple weeks ago at Disney World, have a lot of great things that I enjoy and God has blessed me with, but none of that stuff can satisfy my deepest needs. My weaknesses will dominate me apart from the strength that I can only find in Jesus. So I guess moral of the story, Jesus is the difference maker for your soul. He will advocate for you no matter what. If you trust in him and receive what he's done for you in a world that's wearied, in a world that's hopeless, Jesus is your advocate. He is your refuge. He is your ever-present help in a many in a world of many troubles. There's no better news I can share with you today. Weak made strong. Grief turned to glory. Blind made to see. Jesus is your refuge. He's your advocate. He always will be. Let the world forsake you. And Jesus will be there standing for you, beside you, and with you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in your house today. Thank you for the privilege of bearing this good news. There's some folks that need to hear this today. God, I need to hear this. My soul has been wearied by this world. I look for all the things of this world to bring peace and joy and satisfy, but none of those things work. God, somebody today has a great weakness. It may be a physical weakness. It may be an emotional weakness. It may be a mental weakness. It may be a personal weakness, a marital weakness. I don't know what the weakness is, but somebody has a great weakness and they've asked you to remove it. Somebody has asked for you to remove it for them. We've all prayed for help and strength. And today we believe that you can give it to us through Christ. You can remove it, Lord, if it's your will. But if you choose not to, 
That might actually be the better case scenario because it's in that weakness that we can be made stronger. And it's through that weakness that we can be made stronger and better and closer to you. So Lord, would you move in our house today and would you bring strength and would you bring peace? Would you bring joy? Would you bring advocacy to somebody's heart today that feels most wearied and most weak? That would be willing to say in front of this house that I need the strength that only Jesus can give? Thank you, Lord, for always being our advocate. Thank you, and may you have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.